Good morning, Crosspoint. Um, as some of you may know, we are in the middle of a series this month called Driven to Reach People. And we know that some of you may be starting to call it a missions month, but we honestly intentionally tried to not call it that um, because we don't want you to hear missions month and just think, well, it doesn't apply to me or I'm going to just tune out for this next month because, um, well, I get it. I've been there and I've said the same thing when I've heard like missions like, ah, that's for someone else, not me. But that simply is just not true. We all have a part to play, and part of this month, we want to challenge the church with this. Every Christian, a world Christian. I'll say it again. Every Christian, a world Christian, which means if you are a follower of Jesus, you are walking in obedience to his call to make disciples of all nations, and you have accepted personal responsibility of reaching some of the world's unreached. We must be global Christians with a global vision. Why? Because our God is a global God. Last week, we heard the biblical basis for missions from Seth, that from Genesis to Revelation, God has been writing one story that pursues people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. We wonder why um, missions is such a small part of a DNA of a church or why we hardly see anyone packing up their lives and heading overseas, or are there still half of the world that has never heard the name of Jesus? It's not because God doesn't care. It's not because God doesn't care. I would challenge us to ask ourselves, do we care? <clears throat> I think part of it is because we think that the only time Jesus talks about missions or nations in the Bible is as he's ascending up into heaven as if it's this last minute, oh yeah, by the way, go and make disciples of all nations. I mean, no one's going to hang their lives or change their lives or go against the grain of culture or society based on just those few verses. I mean, we didn't, I didn't. But hopefully, last week you saw that God's heart for the nations is a central theme to the Bible, the very heartbeat of God. If you weren't here last week, we strongly encourage you, go back and listen to Seth's talk. We also challenge you, as you're continuing to read through the Bible this year, that you read it through a world lens. Just as Seth said last week, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Parents, do this with your kids. The, the stories that you learned growing up as a kid that you're now teaching to your own children, read and teach them differently. Joseph... Pharaoh and the Ten Plagues, Daniel and the Lion's End, David and Goliath, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of these stories are bigger than just God loving the characters themselves. It's about God's name being spread among the earth. There are over 6,000 verses in the Bible that speak directly of God's heart for the nations. Don't miss this. God's heart is for you, yes, but bigger than you, it is for his glory to be displayed among the nations. Sorry, I had one job, and it was to come up and introduce my husband. Um, last summer, Stephen took me dancing for my birthday, and if you know anything about my husband, you know that this is probably, no, not probably, this is the last thing that he wanted to do. So buy me flowers, sure, take me on a date, easy. But take me dancing? I've been asking to go dancing for like, what, 11 years? Yeah. Take me dancing, organize this group of friends, and then make a fool of himself in front of a bunch of people, torture. But he did it, 
And although he'll probably say otherwise, he did it with joy. And you want to know why? It's because he knows that I love dancing. And he loves me. And when you love someone, you get to know their heart and the things that they love. And sometimes you find yourself doing things you never thought you'd do in a million years. So that's our prayer for the church this month, is that our hearts start to break for the things that break God's heart. That as we fall more in love with Jesus and what he's done in our lives, we see his heart for the world, and we too begin to have a heart for the world. As we head into this new year, this new decade, we pray that you find yourself doing things you never thought you'd do in a million years. Just as Stephen found himself busting a move and maybe having a little fun, not because he suddenly loved dancing, but because he loves me, you too find yourself filtering your life decisions, your time, your money, your, your prayers, not on what's comfortable for you, but what advances the kingdom of God among the nations. Not because you necessarily love the world, but because you love God, and he certainly loves the world. With that being said, we're moving on this week to God's world. So last week we focused in on God's word. This week we're focusing on God's world. If, you, if we know the story of God starts in Genesis and ends in Revelation with every tongue, tribe, and nation bowing before the throne, that would mean that we are still very much in the middle of the story. So what now? How do we think strategically about the task remaining? If we're to play a part, we need to be asking ourselves, what's the current state of the world and what, where is the need? So that's what Stephen will be talking about this morning. What is the task remaining, and how are we, as God's church, engaging in the heartbeat of God? So I think I've been prayed up already. Um, so we'll just get right into it. There's a lot to say here and a lot to cover. But right out of college, I took a job with a, a big construction company out of Chicago, one of the biggest, in fact. And uh, I was part of a team of people. We worked on large infrastructure projects. So we built roads, bridges, sections of tollway, um, railroad stations, all kinds of different stuff like that. So these jobs would take years to complete. We'd have armies of people and machinery running around our job sites, and the costs were often running into the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? In our company, we had a reputation of being one of the premier builders in the Chicago area, and so our team was expected to turn out a really excellent product at the end of the day, but to do it on time and on budget. So as a 22-year-old kid coming out of college, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how we were going to accomplish such a huge task, and I was just left feeling totally overwhelmed as I would look at these blueprints and budgets and plans and try to figure out what the world are we doing here. Does anybody relate to that? You have a job or maybe it's at home with your family or as you think about your future, trying to plan and try to put things in place and just starting to feel overwhelmed or that it's a daunting task or maybe even paralyzed at times by that. And isn't that how, the, as the church, how we can feel about the Great Commission? I mean, Seth told us last week, Jesus left his disciples with the command recorded in all four Gospels, go and make disciples of all nations. All nations. I mean, that's, that's big, right? <laughs> I mean, we're just, I'm one guy or we're one family or one church. I mean, that, that most, we're from Eureka, right? Most of us don't even leave the state. I mean, maybe you go to Branson for vacation, but I mean, all nations? I mean, very few of us leave the country, that's for sure. And even for the entire body of Christ, this just seems like a huge, huge task, right? And I think it can, at times, be like I felt. It can be daunting, it can be paralyzing, and sometimes it can even be unbelievable that God's going to actually accomplish that. 
So in the construction world, we have this thing called pre-construction. So we'd spend months planning the work, thinking about what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. But to make a good plan, you have to have a few things first, right? You have to know where you're going. What is it that we're building? What's it going to look like? So we would get blueprints and drawings and renderings, and we have a really good picture of where we were going. But then you also have to know where you're starting from. So we would get these things called as-built drawings, and it was, these are the conditions on the ground. This is the situation. This is where you're starting from. And so then our job was, the third part of the planning was, how do we get from where we are to where we're going? What kind of resources, people, equipment, expertise are we going to need to get this done? So again, I think in the case of the Great Commission, we have some of those answers already as we're looking at the planning, right? We know where we're going. We know that the ultimate goal is to make disciples of all nations. So let's just think for a second that you were ready, that you're going to take this seriously. You heard Seth last week. You were so inspired. You're like, Dave, Dave, send me. I'm ready. I'll go. I want to go to the front lines, right? Well, first, Dave hopefully would probably send you to get a little Bible training if you didn't already have it. But it turns out you're an amazing evangelist, right? Like one of the best we've ever seen. Eric's coming down from a nunk saying, how do we reach people? Teach me, wise one. And so we get on a plane, we fly across the ocean, and we drop you in Nigeria. Why Nigeria, you might ask? Well, it turns out you're not much of a language learner. Eureka High didn't train you all that well to learn foreign languages. Probably went to RB, though, and that's, that's the real reason. <laughs> that's where I went. I can say that kind of thing. Anyways, so we take you to Nigeria because in Wikipedia, it tells us that the national language of Nigeria is English. Well, we can check that off the list because we think you speak English pretty well. So we drop you off. You've got your tools. You've got your pamphlets. You've got the Bible in their language. And you start preaching the gospel, doing the work of an evangelist. But the problem is people start looking at you funny. It doesn't seem like you're really getting through to them. And you just wonder, what's the problem? What's going on? You were trained, gifted, called to this, right? Well, unfortunately for you, we dropped you. Next slide. Right in the middle, just right in the middle of Nigeria. I mean, it seemed like a logical place to start. You could spread out from there. But it turns out you're in the, you landed with the uh, Gwandara people, and they speak Gwandaran. So they may speak English enough to do business and to converse and maybe get a little bit of schooling, but not well enough that they're going to understand the gospel in, their, in that language. So when we look at a map, we're looking at a map like this of Nigeria, and we think, that's a nation, right? And that's how most 21st century Americans are going to look at it. One of the 196 sovereign nations designated by the UN that we find on a map. But I think when we start drawing lines around languages and culture and peoples, we get a map that looks a lot more like this. And I think that's more how God sees it. And I think that's more what Jesus was talking about when he said nations. So what does Jesus actually say? And even more importantly, what does he mean? Well, it turns out he wasn't speaking English either, not even King James English. The Greek word here is ethne. That may sound familiar because it's the root to our word ethnic. And so he's talking about ethnic groups, or to use a missiological term, people groups. So the Luzan Committee is sort of like the Congress of World Missions, a bunch of churches, send leaders to go to this. And the definition that they came up with is a people group is the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. Barriers of understanding or acceptance. What's that? Language, 
dialect, culture. There's 6,500 languages spoken in our world today. Within those languages, there's certainly unique dialects that are going to inhibit communication. And beyond that, you've got different cultures that are also going to prohibit the movement of the gospel. So let's just take an example. Think about a Sunni Muslim living in Pakistan speaking Arabic and his neighbor, Shia Muslim, also living in Pakistan speaking Arabic. The gospel comes to one of them. They and their family become a believer. A church begins, and we have a church planting movement. They're going out. They're sharing the gospel. They're trying to teach others. He goes to his neighbor. He shares the gospel with him. He can hear it. He can understand the words, but it's really unlikely the gospel is actually going to move across that barrier because for 1,500 years, there's this huge amount of hatred and fighting that's happened between those two groups. So that's what we're looking at here as we try to kind of get a number on the task of what we're doing. Now, I'm not saying these situations are impossible, right? With the Holy Spirit working in hearts and the power of God, anything's possible. And there are certainly testimonies and examples in scriptures even of where God uses people or sovereignly crosses immense cultural barriers to take the gospel forward. But I think as we plan, we can't count on that. That's not the norm, right? So in the 1970s, people much smarter than me started mapping the world in this way. They started counting um, unique people groups. And so they designated approximately 17,000 people groups in our world. So that's each one of those dots is a people group where you see solid colors. It's because there's so many dots. So anyways, <clears throat> that's a big number, right? I mean, if we thought it was daunting before, 196 nations that we think of, now we've got 17,000. Now it really feels daunting. So again, we're fortunate to know where we're going. And we're even more fortunate to know that this task is going to be accomplished. Seth talked about last week, in Revelation 7-9, John has a view directly into the throne room of God, and he says, <clears throat> After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I mean, can you imagine that? 17,000 people, different languages, different tongues, tribes, nations, all before the throne of God, worshiping him. And if that's where we're going, clearly we're somewhere in the middle of the story, right? Lauren kind of said that. But where? Where are we at? If the world ends tomorrow, how many of those people groups would actually be there? Well, the Joshua Project, the same group that counted the 17,000 people groups, would tell you that 7,000 of those nations still have no access to the gospel. That's over 40% of the people groups in the world that are still unreached. Now, we need to make a distinction here. Seth touched on this last week as well, but I just used the word unreached. Unreached and unsaved are not the same thing, right? Your neighbor, your friend, your cousin, whoever it might be, they can be unsaved. There's a Bible in their language. There's people in their culture who understand and can communicate the gospel to them, like you. There's a church on just about every corner where they could probably go and feel relatively comfortable and hear the message preached. That's unsaved. They remain unresponsive to the gospel, but they have access to it. Unreached is a totally different thing. Unreached is like the mother out in western China who, even if she wanted to know about Jesus, has no opportunity to. There's no Bible in her language. There are no believers in her culture who could speak and communicate the gospel clearly to her. There's no chance of her receiving the good news apart from something happening. Do we see the difference there? 
But then we got to take a step back for a minute. Who cares? Why does it even matter? Why does it matter that there are billions of people out there living and dying each day without the gospel? There are more than 7,000 unique people groups with no access to this message. Have you ever heard people quote verses like these? Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Or Romans 2.12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So I've heard these verses taken out of context like this, and people use them to argue, well, the unreached person, they're just going to go to heaven because maybe they saw God in creation and they believed that there was some sort of a higher power, or they can't be held accountable to it because they don't know any better, so they'll just perish without the law. And on the surface, that maybe kind of seems fair-ish, right? I mean, I'm going to show you in a second in context, that's not at all what these scriptures are saying, but let's just suppose for a moment that it was. If this were true, then wouldn't we actually be doing people a disservice by sharing the gospel with them? If they were going to heaven because they recognized God in creation, then why would we want to go communicate a message that makes them accountable to respond to it? Wouldn't it be better to just leave everybody alone? Don't share the gospel. Don't go there. Why, why do we want to make people accountable to enter through the narrow gate if there's a big wide back gate that they can just wander in because they don't know any better? Wouldn't Jesus' last commands be a cruel command rather than a compelling call? I mean, we don't have time to completely dissect three chapters of Romans here, but just let's read this first, this first verse in context and see what it says. So Romans 1, 18 to 25 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So this passage is demonstrating that God has graciously revealed himself to all humanity throughout all time. This is called general revelation. And again, this isn't a way to salvation, but it is a way that people are going to instinctively have a sense of right and wrong, a way that our world isn't going to spiral into utter chaos, and the way that people are going to have a sense of brokenness, sin, the need for something greater when confronted with the gospel. (coughs) And as Paul says here, it leaves people without excuse, but the wrath of God is still coming to them. It's enough to condemn them, but it's not enough to save them. So without the gospel, people are headed for an eternity in hell. You may not like that idea, and it's certainly not politically correct. And you may even not feel like it doesn't fit with your idea of a fair and just God. But isn't that just a matter of perspective? I mean, I think we're really good at looking at things from our perspective, right? 
But if we take a step back and we look at it from God's perspective, if anything's unfair, it's the fact that you or me or anyone would receive his grace, right? That Jesus, who was perfect, didn't deserve to die, went to the cross and died for our sins. That's what's unfair, not that anybody should get sent to hell because they didn't hear. We all deserve to go to hell. So whether we're comfortable with it or not, the fact remains that there are millions of people, billions of people out there dying and going to hell in these unreached places. That's why this matters. That's why we should care. 30% of the world's population is comprised of these 7,000 people groups. So 30% of the world's population has zero access to the gospel. Most of the church doesn't know that, let alone care. This should bother us, I think. I mean, we have the answer, but we're just like hoarding it to ourselves, right? These passages are part of a larger discourse, these first three chapters in Romans, where Paul's talking about God's righteous wrath being revealed. But then immediately following that, in Romans 3, 21 and 26, he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So this is the good news, right? Right there, right after three chapters of wrath and doom and gloom and all this bad news, it seems, we have the good news. He recaps, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but the righteousness of God, the perfection of God is manifest in the person of Jesus, who God then puts forward as a propitiation, that means to satisfy his wrath by his blood shed on the cross. And this is received by faith, and we're justified by grace as a gift. This is what those peoples are waiting to hear. This is the good news that we have for them. So to go back to my construction analogy for a second. Once we know where we're going, every tongue, tribe, and nation before the throne of God, <clears throat> and we're no, we know where we're at, 7,000 of those tongue, tribes, and nations yet to be represented there, then we have to figure out how we're going to move from point A to point B, right? So most of the time when you're building something, it's not just one task that has to get done. And it's not even just one series of tasks, one after another after another, that has to get done. There's a whole bunch of tasks that need to be completed. And that's the case with a good plan, a good project, is figuring out how do we get as many things done at one time as we possibly can. That's what makes an effective and efficient plan and a good construction manager, essentially. So we don't have time to do just one at a time. We need a lot of things happening at once. But obviously, there's a limit to that, right? I can't go set beams on a bridge if I haven't poured the foundations for the bridge yet. I can't paint lines on the road if I haven't put the asphalt down for the road yet. We call this critical path management. We would look for the thing restricting the overall progress of our job the most or the bottlenecks that were stopping other things from happening. Those things become the priority and as you drive through those, you move on to the next one and the next one and the next one. So again, Seth mentioned Matthew 24, 14 last week where Jesus responds to his disciples questioning about when the end will come. <clears throat> and I think we need to revisit that passage as well. So Matthew 24, 3 to 14, he says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, 
See to it that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So depending on your end, end times theology, which we're not even going to touch today, there's some controversy over who Jesus is talking to here, but it really doesn't matter, right? He says, <clears throat> sorry, I lost my place. Regardless of whether it's addressed to the church or Israel or somebody else completely, it really doesn't matter. Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So regardless of who's preaching it, that needs to happen before the end can come. So have you ever wondered, when will the end come? I mean, it's a good question that his disciples ask, right? Or maybe you've read the books where people are trying to correlate current events to the fulfillment of these prophecies, and even some people are trying to pin specific dates on when this is going to happen. But it says right there, all these are but the beginning of birth pains. So why are we wasting our time trying to predict when this is going to happen? I mean, Jesus gave us the answer. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached, then the end will come. He gave us the critical path to ushering in his kingdom. Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen the day that the last people group hears. It could be 10 years. It could be 10,000 years. I have no idea. But we know it's not going to happen at least until the unreached nations have heard. So where are they? Again, Seth kind of stole my thunder, but let me introduce you to the 1040 window. So... This is the area between 10 degrees and 40 degrees latitude. I think sixth grade social studies, latitude, ladder, that's the horizontal ones. And then between the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. So we have this window created. In this box, we have 35% of the Earth's land area, but 65% of its population. This area approximately represents the area of greatest spiritual challenge in the vast majority of unreached people group in the world, people groups in the world today. Approximately 95% of the 7,000 unreached peoples in the world fall in this box. So according to Patrick Johnstone, he wrote a book called Operation World, over 90% of the world's poorest and most deprived, the children that are most abused and most of the world's illiterate live in this window. The majority of the world's tribal, Hindu, unreligious, Muslims, and Buddhists live here. So we have an acronym to help you remember that. It's THUMB. Tribal, Hindu, unreligious, Muslim, Buddhist. THUMB, right there. What you can see on this map, the purple is predominantly Christian, right? So if you notice, the colors that are not purple, with China being the exception, that's not predominantly Christian. But those non-purple colors fall right in that window. What a coincidence. So, if these people don't believe in Jesus, what do they believe in? We'll start with the tribal. There are about 370 million tribal people in the world today. So there'll be a map before each one. Ooh, can't see this one hardly at all. 
the darker the color, the higher concentration of that group. So you can kind of see it there. Um, most of the tribal people in the world live in Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, Malaysia, the Philippines, or other Southeast Asian nations. So for the tribesmen, everything is spiritual. <clears throat> they may believe in one God, but their daily lives are affected by the world full of spirits. So that rock, that tree, the sky, another person, whatever, it's a, it has a spirit, and they live in fear of these spirits, and then their life becomes consumed by trying to appease them. So the life becomes this great game of manipulating the spirits. Need rain for your fields? Do a rain dance. Having trouble with wild animals? Have the witch doctor cast a spell on them. Having trouble with infertility? Steal somebody's baby and sacrifice it to the god of fertility, or the spirit of fertility. I mean, that, get, that gets dark quickly, right? These aren't the colorful, carefree nudists that National Geographic would lead you to believe they are. These people are hopeless, and they're looking for meaning just like everybody else. Hindus. Well, that's pretty obvious. There are about a billion Hindus living in the world, almost all of them in India. Nobody really knows how Hinduism started, but today there are over 300 million gods in Hinduism. So that's more than, well not more than, almost the entire population of the United States. There are three main gods, Vishnu, his wife Shiva, and their son Brahma, but it really doesn't matter because you can pick any one or a combination of the 300 million you want. There's no standard text, there's really no theology, no governing body at all in Hinduism. So nobody really knows how to define what exactly they believe. And the religion often takes on the forms of the traditions and cultures where it, where it goes. So there's countless sects and practices, and their willingness to make almost anything or anyone a god makes it really difficult as a Christian to go and try to explain to them how there's one true god and we need to worship him exclusively. The unreligious. So here we're talking about a billion people living predominantly in China. You're looking for the dark colors here. China uh, and the former Soviet Union. So you have Russia, Eastern Europe, the Stans. In many of these places, people from a young age are taught to recite this creed. There is no God. There is no God. Believe in yourself. There is no God. So just imagine a room full of young Chinese students before school in the morning saying that creed, kind of like how your kids say the Pledge of Allegiance. It's a really effective way for a communist regime to kind of brainwash people into believing they're their own source of power and ultimately the state is their source of power and protection. But it also is a really effective way to effectively strip a billion plus people of any kind of spirituality or religion. And so the result is this huge block of unreligious atheists. Muslims. There are about 1.8 billion Muslims in the world today. Most of them would call the Middle East home, but there's huge concentrations in North Africa, Northern India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Malaysia. In 610 AD, this guy named Muhammad wanders into a cave. Kind of sounds like a bar joke, I'm starting, but it's not. Uh, he goes into the cave and he has this vision. He comes out and he tells his wife, I was told to recite. And she says, recite what? He says, there is one God, Allah, and I am to be his prophet. She says, well, you should go tell the king that because there's a lot of gods in our lands. I think he needs to know this. So he goes to the king of Mecca, communicates his message to him. The king swiftly kicks him and his 200 followers out. They walk about 80 miles north to Medina and uh, set up a camp there to train people in Islam. A few years later, he and his 10,000 followers now return to Mecca and slaughter anybody in their path who refuses to convert to Islam. 
Over the course of the next few years, almost the entire Middle East converts to Islam. So a good Muslim prays five times a day. They fast during Ramadan. They give 2.5% to the poor. They make pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in their life, and they recite the creed. There is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. When you die as a Muslim, your good deeds are weighed against your bad on a scale. If your good outweighs the bad, you go to heaven. If your bad outweighs the good, you go to hell. Sounds familiar, right? A lot of Christians would say that's what a Christian believes. But it's a religion of legalism and works, and it holds people captive in fear. Buddhist. There are over 500 million Buddhists in the world, mostly in Southeast Asia, places like Cambodia, Thailand, Myanmar, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, Laos are all majority Buddhist countries. In 563 BC, this guy named Siddhartha is born to a king in Nepal, and his dad decides, I want to shelter my son from the evil of the world, so he barely lets him leave the palace his entire childhood. Then as an adult, he gets married. Somebody, I don't know why all of a sudden they changed their tune, but they threw a parade for him. Seems like he's going to get exposed. But he goes out and he sees this old man struggling to carry a bundle of sticks up the hill and for the first time encounters suffering and pain in the world. It really bothers him, and so he thinks on it for a couple of years. Uh, and then when he's 29, his wife has their first child, and he just can't, he's overwhelmed, he can't take it anymore. He leaves, deserts his family, he goes to India, meets countless Hindus, and comes in contact with their 300 million gods. And after spending several years there, basically comes to the conclusion that there's no God, and the, problem in the, the real problem in the world is suffering. So his mission is now, how do I escape suffering? He decides the best way to do that is through meditation. So the Hindu, or sorry, the Buddhist, will spend their life trying to meditate or to think on good things and to forget the bad things to reach a state of nirvana. So unfortunately, most people, it's going to take millions of lives to get there. So they're stuck in this cycle of reincarnation. So if they do well at it, they may move up the rungs a little bit closer to nirvana, or if they do poorly, they may be reincarnated as a lower being and get to try again. So it's a really hopeless thing. Thumb, tribal, Hindu, unreligious, Muslim, Buddhist. These are the people that make up the 1040 window. These are the 7,000 people groups with no access to the gospel. They don't know a Christian. There's no Bible in their language. There's no way that they're going to learn about Jesus even if they want to. These are the people that need to be represented before the throne of God. So we know where we're going. We know where we're starting from, and we have a pretty good idea now as to what the task looks like. How are we doing? Take a look at this video. In the beginning, God created everything. He created a world full of people to know him and to be known by him. This is the story of the Bible, God bringing people to himself. And when we read the Bible, we see how God went to great lengths to do this and how much God cares about people knowing him. You most likely already know this. And you probably live somewhere where people have a general understanding of this great love story between God and humanity. And if they don't know yet, there's probably somebody in town who can tell them. But did you also know that there are three billion people who will live and die without ever hearing this story? Not because they don't care, but because they don't have a choice. Nobody ever told them that once upon a time, God became a human just like them, so that he could teach them how to know their creator. 40% of the world doesn't know this, and they won't know this. Not unless something changes. 
Not unless someone goes to tell them. Jesus is our wonderful example. He left his natural home to come to us. And then he tells us to do the same thing. Because we love Jesus and care about the same things that he cares about, we care about this. That the whole world would know him. That every tongue, tribe, and people group would come and be able to worship him. So the question is, are we doing this? Going out into the world to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation? Well, kind of. While churches do send people out, almost half the world still doesn't have any access to the gospel. But how is this possible? Aren't there people being sent? Well, yeah. There are about 400,000 people serving across the world today. But only 3% of them are actually going to the 40% who have never heard about Jesus. The other 97%, they're going to places that have already heard about Jesus. There's an imbalance. That imbalance leaves only one person for each 250,000 people who have never heard about Jesus. Put another way, we have a spirit-led calling to rethink our focus. When you look at how we use our resources, such as money, the picture doesn't look that much better. To be specific, Christians around the world are giving about 2% of their income to Christian causes. And less than 7% of that is going to cross-cultural workers. And of that cross-cultural giving, only one one-hundredth of that 0.1% is actually going to those working with the 3 billion people who don't know Jesus, have no church, or any Christian neighbors. The other 99% of all cross-cultural giving goes to the rest of the world that already has Christians, Bibles, and churches. Are you seeing the imbalance? Only 3% of our workers with only 1% of our cross-cultural finances are going to the 3 billion people who have never heard about Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with this? We want those 3 billion people to hear about the kingdom of God and how much God loves them. There are 17,000 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. People who share language, culture, and common history. 7,000 of them are considered unreached people groups. These are entire cultures who have never heard the amazing story of how Jesus loves them and came to save them. God has called us to pay attention to this, to love and care for the same things that he does. He put this desire on our heart to see the unreached reached with the amazing story of the love of God. We want to see lasting local church planning movements begin among these people groups that brings renewal and transformation among these cultures and societies. Why? Because God has moved our hearts to see the gospel transform whole societies among the unreached. We know this task is bigger than us. Many of the areas that are in need of the gospel are difficult and resistant places. It isn't something that can be accomplished overnight, but by the power of the Spirit, we endeavor to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that God can be worshipped by all peoples. Are we doing it? Are we doing it? That's the question he asked in the video, and I think that's the question that we need to ask ourselves today. If we're going to take the commission that Jesus gave us seriously, what's it going to look like? If we're going to be about finishing the task, what's it going to take? What kind of questions do we need to be asking personally, as a church? Where are we going to leverage our time, our money, our resources where are we currently spending our time and our lives? Is it worth it? 
Now, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be sending people to Menonk or that we shouldn't be sending people to Central America or that we shouldn't be supporting the local food bank or taking short-term trips to Haiti. That's not what I'm saying. So if you leave here today, don't think that that's what I said. Like a construction project, there are many tasks that need to be done in the kingdom of God, and a lot of them can be happening at the same time. I'm simply suggesting that as we pray and strategize and plan, particularly as we enter this new year and this new decade, that we should consider the vast amount of resources that we're spending over here where the gospel is already very accessible and consider reappropriating some of those over here where the gospel is almost entirely inaccessible. That we should prioritize and come up with a balanced approach in pursuing and fulfilling God's great commission and seeing God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, what a cool picture Jesus paints for us. On earth as it is in heaven. Well, we know in heaven it's 17,000 people groups before the throne. So Jesus is praying, God, would that happen here on earth in the same way that it's going to be in heaven? I know it's heavy. I know that I'm kind of leaving you guys hanging here, but I hope that last week you got a good, maybe a better understanding of God's word. This week, a good understanding of God's world. And next week, Andy is going to come and share with us about God's work. And I think you're going to hear a lot of really exciting and encouraging things that are going on around the world and a lot of interesting opportunities and ways that we can get involved. One, by going, but also by from right here. How can we be involved? What can we do as a church? So I'm excited, and I hope that you'll come back and join us again next week for that. But let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can be here today to worship freely, that we don't have to worry about the persecution of a government or other religions pressing down upon us like so much of the world does. We thank you that you have graciously revealed yourself to all humanity throughout all time and creation. And we thank you that you have graciously revealed yourself to us specifically in the person of Jesus and that we have the hope of the gospel, that we have that message here. And God, I pray that we would not hoard that, that we wouldn't keep that to ourselves, that we would share that with our friends, with our neighbors, with people around us, with international students, and that we would find ways um, to support and press forward that work going on globally, uh, particularly in the places where people haven't heard. We praise you. We just proclaim that you are worth it, that you are worth every tongue, tribe, and nation, that you deserve honor, praise, and glory from all peoples. And we just ask that you would impress that on our hearts, continue to convict us and um, to drive us forward to know what we can do and to plan and prioritize and strategize and move as a church, as a community together um, in fulfilling the Great Commission. We thank you and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.